This is an exclusive presentation of WoWo 1190 AM and 107.5 FM, Unholstered, a podcast giving you an in-depth look at all the stories, events, and topics that show how our officers serve and fight for our community every single day. Hey, good Saturday morning, guys. Glad you could tune in to another edition of Unholstered. I am just one of your hosts. My name is Kayla Blakesley, and if you listen to WoWo on a regular basis, you know that I host my own show. Monday through Friday mornings right here on Wobo. I'm also sitting alongside my co-host, Sophia. Take it away. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sophia Rosales-Catina. I am the captain with the Fort Wayne Police Department, and welcome to the show Unholstered. If you don't know about our show, we are a show with police and media. We're kind of getting the word out about what we do, how we do it, and then we're also um, venturing into bringing on community guests, things people that are doing things in our community that are meaningful and impactful, and kind of meeting those challenges that are facing our community on a daily basis. And I just got to say, Sophia, if folks missed last weekend's episode we did a 9-11 tribute with the Fort Wayne Pipe and Drum Brigade and man I went back and listened to it a couple of different times myself and it just gave me goosebumps so if you want to check it out for yourself you can uh, download the unholstered podcast anywhere that you can download a podcast I just really highly suggest you do that and also while you're there check out the episode we did before that we were talking a, a lot about drugs Sophia and you specifically brought up a gentleman and his story named Nate and Nate is actually in the studio with us right now so Nate I won't talk about you since you're sitting right beside me I'll let Sophia introduce you in just a moment uh, but Nate's story was so powerful we, we shared a little bit here about it on unholstered and so you obviously decided to bring him in Sophia but you got two guests so who'd you bring today? I did and I'm very um, grateful that these two gentlemen have joined us today. I brought on Nate Mollering and Tommy Streeter. They run a recovery kind of video program on Facebook the least that I've seen called Bare Knuckles Recovery. They're also part of Allendale and Fort Wayne Recovery and they're just two really genuine down to earth in the trenches kind of people that are dealing with the epidemic of uh, fentanyl overdose um, and recovery and addiction. And I'm grateful that I've met them and know what they're doing. And I just want to highly encourage uh, their everyone's participation and um, to what they're doing. And if you have a chance to ever meet them, do so, because they're very, very impactful people. So um, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself, Nate and Tommy. Yeah, thank you for having us today. We really appreciate being on here. Uh, my name is Nate Mullering. Uh, I am the Community Outreach Director at Fort Wayne Recovery and Allendale Treatment, and I also work with Tommy on uh, Bare Knuckle Recovery. Yep, and I'm Tommy Streeter, Community Outreach Coordinator with Fort Wayne Recovery and Allendale Treatment. So Fort Wayne Recovery and, and Bare Knuckle are two separate things, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, they are. Yeah, Fort Wayne Recovery is an outpatient treatment center here in Fort Wayne, and then Bare Knuckle Recovery is just a page that Tommy and I started basically to raise awareness about what was going on. You know, there weren't a whole lot of people talking about things that were happening, you know, in the media and just across the board. They're kind of uncomfortable conversations for people to have. So like we just, what? well, I mean, one of the big things obviously is the, is the, the fentanyl mm-hmm. issue going on right now, you know, which isn't, which is a synthetic opioid, which is 50 times stronger than heroin and a hundred times stronger than morphine. And it's something that uh, many people are not very familiar with. We want to make it kind of a household name, not because it's such a great thing, but because it's it's done so much damage to the community locally and, and on a national level. Um, you know, as some of you may know, some of you may not know, you know, the opioid epidemic started kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s with Purdue Farm and Oxycontin. Um, and for many years, it was a lot of prescription pain pills on the street. But now we've the paradigm has shifted and it's all this synthetic opioid called fentanyl which is on the street, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and it's incredibly hard to dose. And it's in the majority, pretty much every single street drug that is considered an opiate. Um, and, and it's really, it's, it's hurting a lot of people. And one of the things we're seeing too, which is really concerning, 
which is partly why Tommy and I started our page, was because all the pills that are on the street that people are buying that they think are Vicodin or Percocet or Xanax is full of fentanyl. So they think they're getting one thing and they're getting another, and it's causing a lot of... We set a record last year in 2020 for non-fatal overdoses, but also for fatal overdoses. And in 2021, we're on uh, track to, to also break the record there. And that's not a record, obviously, you want to be breaking, but it's something that it's becoming an annual theme here in, in Allen County um, and in Northeast Indiana across the board where we're breaking those records, unfortunately. So that's really why we started our page was because there was a growing group of people that were reaching out to us. Um, we always refer to it as a club nobody asked to join. Yeah. Um, it's a group of families who have lost their loved one to an overdose, and we would get a staggering number of mothers, fathers, grandparents, whoever, husbands, wives, reaching out saying, hey, my loved one died of an overdose, and I've got this coroner's report here, and it says fentanyl. What is fentanyl? And people didn't know what fentanyl was, and we would explain it to them, and we would explain to them how common it is and how often this happens, and their next question would be, why is nobody talking about this? So we decided to start talking about it. <laughs> and how has that gone? How, how long have you been running the Facebook page? I think we started in late January, early February, and it, it got oh, Just pretty, this year? Yeah, just okay. this year. Um, and it's gotten pretty popular pretty quickly because, again, we're, we have people reach out to us all the time that say the, main, the reason that they like our videos so much is because we talk about those things that nobody else seems to want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So it, it definitely got popular a lot quicker than we had anticipated. Um, so we've got a YouTube channel now and a website, just bareknucklerecovery.com. You know, as I watch these videos, I think they're, they resonate because you guys are real. You come from a place of addiction, so you have buy-in to what you're selling. You know what it's like. You know the struggles that people face. You know through your own experiences what you've put your families through. Um, and I think that that's what resonates with people. People don't want to hear people preaching to them. They want to hear people and their stories, and they want to know there's hope for them. And like I said in the last show, if if your um, person in your life that's addicted is alive, there's hope for recovery. Um, it's it's hard and it's daunting, but there's still hope. And I think that's what people want to know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we talk about on Bare Knuckle a lot, Tommy and I both, is our stories, not because we think we're so awesome, but just because we want people to know that it's okay if it takes you multiple tries. Tommy and I both had years and years of not necessarily what I would call failures, but we found a lot of ways that didn't work, um, and our families went through it with us. And so we like to take that experience and put it out there so people don't feel so alone when they're going through it because it is a very sh- – it, it's a lot of people feel a lot of guilt and shame mm-hmm. when they have a problem, when they struggle with substance use disorder. You know, I always tell people there was a long period of time where I decided that I didn't want to use any longer – and I didn't know how to stop, and I kept using, and I would swear up and down every day, and if you hook me up to a lie detector test, I would pass, that I'm not going to use drugs or alcohol today, and I would wake up the next day and realize that I used drugs and alcohol the night before, and the, and the overwhelming shame and guilt that would accompany that was almost unbearable, you know, and so we just want people to know that there are people out there who understand, and that we know what it feels like to feel hopeless and to feel trapped in this awful cycle, and that there is hope, and we want their families to know there's hope, too, because it's easy for families to lose hope. I know my family yeah. lost hope many times. Um, and just like Sophia said, if if your loved one is still alive, there's still hope. You know, We want people to know that, and we want also people to feel comfortable with people they can reach out to. Can you, Nate, walk us through your story? Because I have watched some of your videos, and 
I mean, it's some some powerful stuff. In fact, we we played a portion of a clip of that video a couple of weeks ago and, and got a huge response of it, which is one reason you're here with us today. But for folks who haven't seen any of the videos and this is the first time they're hearing from you, can you just walk us through your story of what happened? Yeah, I mean, I can keep a long story short. Um, <laughs> Please do. It's only a 30-minute yeah. show now. You <laughs> can't. I can take it like an hour and a half. You, know, you can't yeah. keep it short. I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana. I grew up here. Um, you know, uh, grew up um, with a uh, two-parent home, you know, pretty normal upbringing. Um, you know, I remember from an early age, I always felt, and th- th- you'll, you'll, you'll see this in a lot of people's stories that struggle with substance use disorder. Um and, and addiction can take many forms, too. I'll say that as well. You know, there's people that struggle with substances, whether it be drugs or alcohol. There's people that struggle with food. There's people that struggle with, you know, sex, uh, all kinds of things, impulsive buying, gambling. And a lot of those people's stories, they'll tell you that um, they felt different than everyone early on. And I, I know that for me, I felt like I was dropped off from Mars. And, you know, I'm with all these people on Earth who seem to have everything figured out. Hmm. You know, so I went to um, private schools. I went to St. Paul Lutheran School, which is a school downtown here um, in Fort Wayne. And my first encounter with drugs was like a lot of people's first encounter with drugs in my generation. It was, it was prescribed to me by a doctor. I think when I was 11 or 12 years old, you know, I was having trouble in school, as most 12, 10 or 12, 13-year-old boys do. <laughs> um, and at, at that time, I think everybody was uh, under the impression that if you had trouble in school, you were ADHD mm-hmm. or there was something wrong with you. Um, so I already felt like there was something wrong with me. Now I had a, a psychiatrist telling me there's potentially something wrong with me. So that just solidified the issue. Um, so I was prescribed Adderall, which is a, a, an amphetamine, which closely resembles methamphetamine. Um, and it, it can certainly be very helpful to individuals who are adults who have, you know, attention deficit disorder. But as a child with an undeveloped brain who already had some issues with uh, brain chemistry, and that's essentially what, you know, typically substance use disorder is. There's an imbalance in the brain somewhere. Something's not firing correctly. Um, so I took it and I felt different than uh, most people do when they take an amphetamine probably. And I, I felt really good. So early on, I, I felt immediately as if, um, you know, one's good, three's better. Mm-hmm. Even before I knew what addiction was or that I was doing something wrong, I had an, an inclination that I should abuse it so I could feel, you know, three times better if I take three pills instead of one. So I started doing that, and, of course, that piqued my interest then, you know, when things like marijuana and alcohol came around in early high school. Of course, I was going to try them because a drug that— other ones made you feel good, so yeah. A hundred percent, you know, then you, you, you become very open-minded about feeling better because— one thing we always talk about people with substance use disorder is we're we're very ruled by our feelings. You know, we, we, we I feel like getting high, I don't feel like getting high, I feel like being sober, I don't feel like being sober. I feel good today, I don't feel good today. You know, we, we let our feelings control our lives, essentially. Um, and that's one of the things we learn to do in recovery is that we don't have to live by our feelings. So I was controlled very much by my feelings, and my feelings told me that I needed to feel better immediately all the time. Um, fast forward a little bit, you know, I played high school and college football. So when I was 15, 16 years old, I had my first football injury. I had shoulder surgery. I was prescribed uh, Vicodin and Percocet for my injury because uh, I had to have surgery, you know. And again, uh, during that time, you know, um, I'm not pointing any fingers. It's the doctors that gave it to me because at that time, that was the understanding, you know. Purdue Pharma did a good job of creating this idea that if, you know, somebody's in pain, they won't become addicted to opiates. Um, so it was kind of like, you know, take it as you need it, you know, you'll be okay. There wasn't a huge warning <laughs> attached to prescribing a 16-year-old opiates, which you would think there is now today that you wouldn't dream of it. Um, but Can I ask real quick how yeah. old you are now? Just I'm 29. 29, okay. Yep, 29, born in 92. 
So a lot of this is in the early 2000s, you know, between 2000 and 2010 mm-hmm. is where most of this took place, it, it, between middle school and high school. Um, so I was given, you know, prescription pain medicine, and of course I liked that very much. I always describe my first interaction with opioids as a semi-spiritual experience because I felt immediately like, oh, this is what I was missing my entire life. This is how I should feel every single day for the rest of my life, no matter what it takes. And I legitimately felt that way, and it's a lot of people look at you like you're crazy when you say that, but it's true. Um, so that just pushed me down an even darker path, obviously, and not not extremely quickly. I didn't um, automatically at sixteen year old at sixteen, you know, swallow an entire bottle of pills and become addicted to heroin. But it was a slow burn um, because I had three more uh, surgeries throughout my football career. I had two more shoulder surgeries and a back surgery. So throughout high school, I went to Concordia High School and I struggled mightily with trying other substances such as cocaine, um, you know, ecstasy, any, anything you can imagine, right? I did, you know, cough syrup, whatever, you know, I could get my hands on, essentially in my quest to always feel better, right? To always not be in the sober state of mind, which as somebody with substance use disorder, I always felt like I was trapped in my sober body. And then my escape was my drugs or alcohol, right? Like that would, that was my vacation from my, my pain, my excess, my, my, my existence was pain essentially <laughs> is how I felt, you know? Um, and so then you have an undeveloped brain, you start pouring drugs and alcohol on top of it. You know, the average person has um, a certain amount of uh, endorphins in their brain, good, you know, good chemicals that make us happy, right? And somebody that is uh, a substance use disorder person has less than normal, typically, uh, for one reason or another, whether it's trauma or they're born that way. So then you take a substance and it spikes it super high. And then when you come back down off the substance, it doesn't drop you down to normal. It doesn't drop you down to your normal. It drops you down past that. So that's where addiction comes in, right? Mm -hmm. So we get on this roller coaster of brain chemistry. So imagine you're 16 years old. You're already struggling. You know, even as a high school student who doesn't have a drug problem, you're already struggling with things like identity, right? Fitting in. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, what am I going to do with my life? There's a lot of pressure. So then you throw, you know, prescription pain pills in. And at that time, you know, this was like, what, 2007, 2008? Um, you could get about any prescription pain pill you wanted on the street because they were giving out like candy. You know, I mean, that's what all those pain clinics were still open with Dr. Cozy and all those guys, you know, they hadn't been shut down yet. Um, so you could get whatever you wanted, basically. It was just as easy to get as marijuana at the time, which is, you know, pretty easy to get. Um, so fast forward a little bit, you know, I made it through high school, barely. I graduated somehow. Um, spent most of my time intoxicated, you know, whether it was alcohol, whether it was cocaine, or whether it was, you know, some kind of opiate or some kind of benzodiazepine like Xanax or Valium, didn't matter. Uh, I just wanted to be in an altered state of mind. So I made it to college. I got a, I got a football scholarship to go play football at the University of St. Francis. Um, you know, somehow I made it through a football career in, in high school, and I, and I graduated by the grace of God, I guess. They just wanted me out of there probably. Um so then I, I got to college and I had a back injury about this, I think the first year I was there. So that was more pain pills. Um, and then that was in the early 2010s. I think I was like 2012. Um, and that's when, you know, they started shutting down all these pill mills, which was great, right? Like we needed to shut down the pill supply. However, you know, certain doctors uh, alone, there's one practice that they, they estimated they created over 10,000 opiate addicts, just those guys alone. So then you shut off the supply. This is something we didn't predict, right? Because <laughs> um, how, how would you, right? This is nothing like we'd ever faced in the country before. So, I mean, who's going to be the expert you're going to turn to? So this is shut down. These guys go to jail. The pill supply dries up. Well, the cartels were very smart, and they started marketing heroin extremely heavily, right? So... I was introduced to heroin for the first time, I think it was 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. And that's because I could no longer find pain pills on the street, and I wasn't getting as many from my doctor as I needed at that point. So then I started to use heroin, which uh, changed things for me a little bit. 
Um, and what really turned the corner for me was when I started to become an IV drug user. You know, uh, one thing as a drug user, and Tommy can certainly attest to this as well, you're always trying to find the most efficient way to use your drugs <laughs> and maximize their effect and stretch them out as long as possible. And then you find out that using it in an IV capacity is the best way to do it, right? It's the most efficient. So that's what really kind of turned the corner for me. And then, uh, you know, long story short, I tried to go back to school after, uh, I think it was Christmas break in 2013, and there was no way. <laughs> I was, I was you strung out? Or? Oh, I was completely physically addicted, you know? And so I, 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 I stepped away from school, and I had every intention in the world of getting sober and staying sober, but I didn't follow any kind of program. And that's why Tommy and I pushed so hard for people to get in some kind of program, because as people with substance use disorder, when we're getting sober, we need accountability. When you're using drugs and alcohol, we've talked a little bit about the brain and the way brain chemistry is set up. You reinforce these neural pathways in your brain every time you use a substance. And so it becomes just like a walking path, right? Like it becomes easier to walk on it as time goes. And now you're asking this person to take away, number one, their primary coping mechanism. And then also you're asking them to walk on this path that they're not used to. So when you take away their drug, they have to create new neural pathways. Well, you've been reinforcing these behaviors for years and years now. And you've developed these habits. And we all know even habits not associated with drugs are hard to break, right? Like it takes, what, 28 days to break a habit, 21 Mm -hmm. days to make one. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's incredibly important for people to have support. The first time I tried, I did not have any. I had family support, but we always tell people your families, they don't make good sponsors. They don't make good counselors. They don't make good sober living managers. They're not meant to be in that role. They're meant to be mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever, wife, husband. Um, You need somebody that's walked in that line of work or in that, you know, that walks in it voluntarily as a passion to lead you through and somebody who's been where you're trying to go. Tommy, what's your story? My story is very similar to Nate, honestly. Um, Aside from him being from Fort Wayne, I'm from Warsaw, Indiana, so, you know, 45 minutes away from here. I also grew up in a very healthy, loving two-parent home, Um, went to a good school, and I had all the love and support that I needed when I was growing up. I just didn't feel it. I didn't, like, I knew that it was there, but I felt like I didn't deserve it, maybe, um, I always had a really low self-esteem. Um, I was always popular, had a lot of friends, but again, I didn't, I couldn't see why. And I was just never really comfortable in my own skin, you know, just like Nate said. And my first experience with drugs was um, the summer between eighth and ninth grade. I smoked some marijuana with my brother and some of his friends because I always wanted to hang out with my, he was my older brother. I wanted him and all his friends to like me because I didn't like me and would do whatever I thought I needed to do to make people like me. Um, so I smoked some weed with him and some of his friends, and I I also had what I now call is basically a spiritual experience. The first time I felt what that was like, and it just immediately took over like every decision that I made. Um, my freshman year of high school, I would not get up and go to school if I couldn't get high before school. I also played football. Um, in 10th grade, I dislocated my sciatic joint, and so in my lower back, went to a doctor. They did an x-ray and saw what was wrong with it threw a bunch of pain pills at me and I was already experimenting with other drugs and alcohol at the time. But when I got these three bottles of opiates, again, you know, that, that replaced the marijuana that I was always seeking out. And I started seeking that out. Doctor eventually said that I didn't need them anymore. And just like Nate said, the doctor were, the doctors were telling me and my family that if I'm actually in pain, it's like, I'm going to be fine. I just take them as I need them. I'm not going to get addicted to them. You can't get addicted to these. And sure enough, I got addicted to them. So when I didn't have them anymore, I was very ill, and I wasn't really sure why because the doctor said I was going to be fine. And then uh, one of my buddies told me that 
the reason I felt so crappy is because I've been taking all these Percocet for the last, you know, four or five months. Now I don't have any. He's like, you could get some from somebody on the street, I'm sure. And that's what I ended up doing. So that's pretty much what I did, you know, for the rest of my high school career. I ended up getting kicked off the football team because I failed three drug tests. Um, and I was the quarterback at Warsaw. So they kept, they gave me, a, I failed one. They said, don't fail another one and you'll be okay. So I would go home every single day and tell my, or I'd wake up every day and I'd be like, I'm not going to get high today because if I get kicked off the football team, like I've got nothing else. My grades aren't very good because I'm always high. I never pay attention. I'm hardly ever in class. Like the only thing that I had going for me was playing football. And I really did not want to mess that up, but I could not stop getting high no matter how bad I wanted to, told myself, told all my friends that I was going to stop. I'd try to do everything that I could on Monday morning to not fail a drug test, drinking a ton of water, taking all these random things that I would read on the Internet with said that I could, you know, take this and you'll pass a drug test. <laughs> Didn't ever work for me. So I ended up failing three, got kicked off the football team. Um, and at that point, started to just go downhill even further because, <clears throat> like I said, that was all that I really had. So just, you know, started using more and more drugs and alcohol. I did end up graduating high school, but only because my mom worked there at the time and everyone loved my mom because she's awesome and no one wanted to disappoint her by failing me. So I did graduate. Um, and then that was another kind of turning point for me because as all my friends that I grew up with were going to college and getting their degrees and starting families and I'm, you know, still living in my mom and dad's basement working some crappy job in Warsaw, I just just more guilt and shame set in about everything and that summer was the first time that I was ever offered heroin because again just like Nate was saying all the pills on the street dried up couldn't find them anymore and then uh, I tried to go get some one day and this guy was like oh I don't have any pills but I can get some heroin I was extremely sick so I was going to do whatever I had to to make sure that I wasn't sick anymore so I went and got some heroin and that first time I used a needle so i immediately became an iv heroin user that day sure enough went downhill even faster like nate said once that happens it's a whole different ball game at the time you said you were living at home i mean did your parents have any idea this was happening or so they had they knew that i had you know smoked that i smoked weed and you know drank every once in a while and i had never gotten in really any trouble though aside from like failing those drug tests like I mean, I had a job at the time. I graduated high school. I hadn't been arrested yet. So it yes. was not really, to them, it wasn't really a huge problem. They didn't know everything. Like, they didn't know that I was eating, you know, ridiculous amounts of pills in their house or anything like that. They didn't know that I was using heroin. Um, but I ended up losing that job. I got arrested. And a couple, I don't know, a couple weeks after I got arrested the first time, I was walking through my kitchen one day. And my dad stopped me in the kitchen and he was like, dude, you look terrible. Like, what is going on? And I, so I lied to him and told him that I was addicted to pills. I wasn't ready to tell him that I was an IV heroin user. Uh, so a few days after that was the first time that I went to a treatment center, which wasn't an actually, it wasn't actually a treatment center. So this was back in 2014. And back in 2014, anyone could advertise on Google as an addiction treatment center. You did not have to be licensed by the state. There was no really requirements to it. Um, Google now has this uh, process that's called you have to become legit script certified in order to be able to advertise on Google as a treatment center. That wasn't a thing back then. So we just show up to this house, this big old farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere in Goshen. And there's this woman who runs it who says she's a nurse. She's got a doctor there and a counselor there. And I'm the only person in my family that has ever struggled with drug or alcohol addiction. So 
my mom and dad really didn't know what to do. And again, that's part of the reason Nate and I do what we do now is to try to navigate people through yeah, this process. Yeah, that's scary to say back then. I mean, 2014 was not that, that long, long ago. ago. No, it wasn't. But basically, you sh- we showed up to this house, and the woman was like, they didn't accept health insurance. It was, you give this woman $12,000, and then... Oh, I'm drop sure. you off, uh-huh. and then they yeah. leave, and every, I find out the next day that everyone in this house is still getting high. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I start getting high, have somebody bring me some heroin, and I actually overdosed in the basement um, like three days after I was there. It was on Father's Day. It was visiting day, so my mom and dad were there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm down in the basement, and uh, I locked myself in the bathroom. My mom's looking for me, and someone runs upstairs and was like, he's in the bathroom, and the door is locked. And so my dad comes downstairs and actually breaks the bathroom door down. And then there I was laying on the floor. Um, Paramedics came again back in 2014. Paramedics did not always carry Narcan on them. Like all the, you know, law enforcement, paramedics, firefighters, they all carry Narcan now. Yeah. Sophia's got some right there. (laughs) They didn't have it back then. So they just told my mom and dad that I was dead and that was it. And uh, they started to carry me up the steps and I, they put me in the ambulance and I woke up for some reason. So that was the first of my seven stays at a treatment center. The oh, next wow. six, I went to an actual treatment center. Um, that place ended up getting shut down because of me almost dying in the basement. My mom called the, um, I don't know, the Indiana Attorney General, I think is who she called. Someone like that. Anyways, she got that place shut down. But I yeah, need to know your mom by the yeah. sounds of things. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, she, sounds she's like a awesome. good lady to have in your yeah. corner. So as we listen to this story, I just I I, I kind of want your guys' input on this. It's like, so if somehow, some way, we've got some young person or, or, or older adult listening to you and thinking, man, that's my story, right? I, I This is my story. It's a cycle for me. What advice do you have for them right now today? What can they do today? If they themselves are struggling, yes, if they've they got to ask for help. Tr- how do period. they do that? I Where mean, do they go? They could, If they want to talk to us, we would be more than happy to do that. They could find us on Facebook, um, our Bare Knuckle Recovery page, the website. You can send an inquiry, um, send us your phone number, email, whatever. So you whatever will reach out personally doing. and talk to Absolutely. them and anyone mm-hmm. who got Absolutely. contact you. Okay. So I, I'm just curious because now I'm hooked on both of your stories. Mm-hmm. Here you both are doing heroin. You both have obviously OD'd multiple times. Yeah. What finally brought you both to the conclusion that, hey, this isn't going to work for me anymore? And then ultimately, how did you all pull yourself out of it? We always say that there's rock bottom is whenever you decide that it is. You know, we just say stop digging. You know, that can be your rock bottom. You don't have to keep going lower. Unfortunately for Tommy and I, we <laughs> we, we kept digging for a while um, until we were almost dead, literally both of us, um, several times over. Um, but that doesn't have to be, you know what you do i mean it you know your rock bottom could be getting an owi or getting a felony you know arrest on a syringe i mean that could be your rock bottom you know and i wish i would have let that be my rock bottom certainly yeah <laughs> and for me it really Can I ask what your rock bottoms were because you just said that and now i'm well yeah i'll for, let nate go first for me my rock bottom was a culmination of just pain and suffering for years you know i was homeless multiple times overdosed multiple times uh had multiple runs with the law you know, so I basically OD'd twice in 24 hours in 2017 after I had had a lot of friends die at that point. So the paradigm really shifted when fentanyl came on the scene. In 2014, 2015, fentanyl really hit Fort Wayne and Allen County really hard. Um, so people were dying right and left. And um, and the person that I was buying my drugs from, I knew people were dying off his stuff too. But at the time, I was so far gone that it I, I had lost all hope. 
Um, so I OD twice in 24 hours. The first time, you know, they had to smash down a bathroom door to get to me. They, you know, they work on me, get me, get me back alive, awake, whatever it was. Put me in the ambulance, take me to the hospital. I left the hospital against medical advice. Um, went back, got the same drugs from the same guy, the same day. Went in the room, locked the door to the bedroom, and then OD'd again. And then the first responders had to come again. And then the, they basically came and they were like, man, you're not going to make it a third time. Um, and I didn't care. I just told them not to come a third time. I said, save yourself the trip, just send the coroner. Um, but they weren't willing to do that, you know. And um, so basically what happened was a, a narcotics detective just sat down and talked to me and really for no other reason than to just hear my story and just to offer me a hand and say, I want to help you if you want help. And I took the help. And So for- is that detective just simply offering the help? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, and I had had help multiple times, but really for me, it was a culmination of having the pain has to become greater than the high. You know what I mean? Like the the drugs at the end, Tommy, I'll say this too. Like the drugs stop working for you at a certain point. You're just maintaining. Like you're still miserable whether you're high or sober. You just keep getting high because that's what you know. So for me, I just was done. I know I didn't want to be homeless again. And I was homeless at the time. I knew I didn't want to be homeless again. I knew I didn't want to OD again. I knew I didn't want to be sick anymore. I knew I didn't want to, you know, be always worried about getting arrested. You know, like it, it just was a culmination of things. I decided that I had had enough. And along those lines, just deciding you had enough, I decided I had enough a lot of times. But we always say recovery is not for those who want it. It's not for those who need it. It's those for those who do it. So I decided that I was just going to start listening to everybody, everything everybody said. And Tommy and I say this all the time because our plans, all our plans sucked. All our plans ended up at us in jail, in the hospital, or, like, laying on the bathroom floor, waking up somehow from an overdose that we survived on our own. Um, and Tommy can tell you his rock bottom, too. His is pretty gnarly as well. So, Well, like Nate said, it, it wasn't necessarily just one event. It was years of just absolute misery that, you know, kind of pile up. And so from that first time I went to treatment, when I came home, I, I started getting high again right away. You know, after I after my parents found me overdosed, I told myself and them, like, I will never get high again. And three months later, I was I got kicked out of their house for shooting up heroin again. So from 21 to 25, I was pretty much homeless more than I wasn't um, living in my car, in the park, in anyone's house who would let me stay there. So, you know, that's pretty terrible in itself. It's definitely not fun being dope sick every day or every other day and just doing, you know, absolutely whatever I had to to make sure that I could continue to get high. I think in that time I had overdosed on heroin or fentanyl, you know, five or six more times. And there was two times where I overdosed twice in a matter of a few days on the same drugs from the same person, just like Nate did. And, you know, when you're a drug addict like Nate or I, if you hear that, if I hear that someone's got some heroin that someone just overdosed on, like, I'm going to go get heroin from that guy because I know it's good. Like, that, I want the most, the strongest heroin that I can find. So anyways, and this was in, um, like, late March or mid-March of 2018. Um, I was living in my car at the time, and I would always go up to South Bend to get my heroin. By this time, I had no other resources. I had no money. I had no other ways to get high. I had already pretty much robbed everyone I could, scammed everyone that I could. No one would trust me with their money to go get them heroin anymore because I would never bring it back to them or I would say that I got pulled over and threw it out the window or whatever stupid excuse I could make up. So by this time, I would always go up to South Bend and I would make contact with one of the 50 guys that I knew up there that sold heroin and I would tell them I'm going to come get this much heroin and I would go up there and basically start a fight with them, assault them, do whatever I had to do, and then take whatever heroin I could get. And I knew that this was not safe at all. Most drug dealers have guns. 
and I knew that that could wind up with me getting killed one day. But I also knew that getting killed, like if I get murdered by a heroin dealer, cool. Now I don't have to suffer anymore. Now I'm not miserable anymore. Now I don't have to figure out how I'm going to get heroin every single day anymore. So the threat of knowing that I might die doing this was worth it to know that I might get some heroin out of it. Well, the last time I did it, I did end up getting shot by the 16-year-old kid that I was trying to rob because I chose to not assault him because he was like a 16-year-old kid. So I was sitting in his car, and I he handed me my bag, and I grabbed the bag that was on his lap, and I tried to get out of the car door, and the door was locked. So I was trying to fumble. I was fumbling around trying to unlock the door and hold on to my bag of heroin. And while I was doing that, he reached down, pulled up a gun, and shot me. Right here. In the head. Oh, my god. Yeah, gosh. right behind my ear. So after that, I did assault him, and I got out of my got out got into my car. I didn't know that I had been shot at the time; just all the adrenaline that was running through me, I didn't even feel it. But I got back in my car and just saw blood like all over my shoulder. So I just kind of went like this, and my hand was covered in blood. So I grabbed a towel. I was living in my car at the time, so I had a towel and clothes in there. I wrapped a towel around my head, asked one of my friends to come get me um, his girlfriend pulled all the little pieces of lead out of the back of my head and we put super glue and liquid skin on it took me to his house um i did the rest of that heroin overdosed on it twice i had a you know i I had enough left that i knew if i did all of it i would probably overdose and not wake up so that's what i did but i ended up waking up so when i woke up the next day i was like all right well now i really have no i couldn't even walk hardly i was after i overdosed that last time i probably laid there for I don't know, 24, 36 hours or so without hardly moving, not going to the bathroom, not eating, didn't drink any water. It was, I was just so out of it. Um, And I just called my aunt and I was like, all right, I think I need to go back to treatment now. And that was the last time I went to treatment. And your aunt, why your aunt? Uh, My mom probably wouldn't have answered. And that was a very healthy boundary for her to set at the time. I've heard that a lot. Uh, Went to Recovery Rocks this weekend, this past weekend, and we heard that a lot from the parents, there's just healthy boundaries you have to set um, with your whoever the addict is. We, we tell parents that all the time, and we know how hard it is because yeah. we had to watch our parents do it. To be a mother and to kick your son out of your house, like I, I really can't imagine how tough that would be, but it saved my life because I would have died in my mom's basement, and Nate would have died in his mom's house if they had not kicked us out. And we tell, mm-hmm. we've met with moms who have found their kids yeah. dead in their houses. Mm-hmm. And we tell everyone, the other moms that we talk to, like, trust me, you do not want to, you don't want to be the one that finds him. If he's going to die, he's going to die, whether he's in your house or he's out on the street. You do not want to find him. People that find their kids are never the same. And we're lucky that we're going to have Jennifer Hope from Mom of an Addict on next week to talk about the parental side of this. Certainly. Um, And not from the addict's point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you guys know what you're talking about is dealing with your own families, but it's just a different perspective when it's the actual parent. Yeah, in here. Let me ask you both this then, because you both kind of have you do have similar stories with it being prescribed from a doctor. You both had injuries and you just started with opioids. And and you said in the beginning, Nate, we've gone from an opioid crisis to to a fentanyl crisis. Absolutely. What's the solution? And if there's a magic wand that we could wave, you know, how can we solve this problem? Because I think going back to to the opioid epidemic, yeah, we shut down all these pill mills, essentially. And I mean, obviously, we saw some repercussions of that, but that did kind of, you know, dampen that a little bit. But here we are with fentanyl just running rampant. I mean, what's what's the solution? Is there a solution? I don't know. Well, there's no easy solution. There's no quick fix. I mean, there's no one thing that we could do. I think that's going to fix everything. I mean, it's a widespread problem. You know, I mean, 
there's so many different uh, things at play with the new paradigm with fentanyl um, from, you know, because it's all being produced in China. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's all. Can you talk about that a little bit yeah. more? Because Sophia actually brought this up a couple of weeks ago, and I had a lot of people they're not understanding because when they hear fentanyl, they just think it's coming across the southern border uh, right. by a cartel. And that's really not quite how it starts. Right. Well, it all starts in China. You know, China has a bunch of these pharmaceutical companies. They're one of the leading countries in the world with pharmaceuticals now, um, which is kind of scary in and of itself. But so there's a lot of rogue companies. They're not necessarily rogue in the sense that they're illegal, but they're kind of there's so many of them that it's hard for them to manage. Uh, And there's a lot of substances that can be produced in China that are legal to produce as long as they're not distributed on the Chinese mainland. And that includes a lot of fentanyl and analogs of fentanyl. And what analogs, it's basically just the molecular structure tweaks slightly to be a little bit different so that it doesn't show up. And the Chinese do this to stay ahead of law enforcement in their country and in the United States. Um, So what they do is they create these fentanyl drugs, these analogs, right? And then, or they create precursors. So the precursors are things that you need in order to, because fentanyl synthetic, everybody needs to remember that. So you don't need poppies. That's what changed it for everybody. You don't need a field of poppies. You don't need workers. You need a lab and a lab coat and some vials and you can create fentanyl and it's more powerful and it's much cheaper. So they create these precursors or they create the finished product in the analog, whatever's still legal in China. And then they ship it overseas and they ship it to either Mexico to the cartels and they either take a finished product and they cut it up and they make it into pressed pills or they sell it as powder or they send them the precursors and they just assemble it in China in one of their labs. What they're also doing is sending it through the mail. So you can get on the dark web today and find, uh, if you wanted to right now, you could find a company in China and they'll talk openly with you on chat rooms because they're not under any legal scrutiny in China and they all live in China. So they're not afraid. So they'll say, hey, how much fentanyl do you want? What do you want? Like, And they're very legitimate. They're going to send you the real product. I mean, they treat it like a business. I mean, they're making trillions of dollars sure. on this stuff. So they even get a value added tax in, in China. Like the Chinese government gives them a discount and they and they give them a rebate on the on fentanyl because it's such a high producer for them. So what they're doing is they're talking openly and they'll send it to you in the mail. And so then they'll package it as like, you know, um, whatever, you know, like plates or, you know, lamps. They're very good about it. They're, I mean, they and they'll brag about it in these chat rooms about how good they are getting through customs with their packaging. Um, and so then they do that. So they send it directly to the United States through the mail. And they also send it to Canada. So Canada is much more loosey-goosey with some of their law enforcement. Um, so a lot of it's coming from the southern border. But what a lot of people don't talk about it's coming from the Canadian border as well, too, because it's such a big border and it's so wide yeah. open. The cartels and the Chinese have created – I mean, they've bought a lot of land and, and um, um, infrastructure in Canada. You know, And one of the things they're doing, too, the Chinese, these companies, are helping the cartel launder their money. So one of the things the cartel does is they take the money that they get from selling fentanyl in the United States, and they buy a bunch of very cheap uh, Chinese knockoff clothes, like in, in um, California or whatever, and that launders the money for them. So they have clean money now, and they have clean products. So they take those shirts, and they sell in Mexico for, for more money. They mark them up as real products, and then they get their money washed, basically. Um, so they're in cahoots with doing all this stuff. Sophia, do you see the fentanyl coming in via the mail? Do you guys confiscate a lot of that? Um, we have had um, seizures at FedEx, UPS. We regularly check, and they're really good at working with us um, on those things. We run our narcotics dogs through there as well. And I know that custom, our Border Protection uh, CBP does that ex- a lot as well. But, you know, it's hard to keep up. Mm-hmm. It's just 
it's overwhelming, um, well, especially when you don't so have the amount. Yeah, yeah, there's so much. There's so much of it coming through the mail. I mean, it, it's massive. The, some of the amounts that they've confiscated. I mean, I think at the border, and I don't know, we've read multiple, yeah, multiple stories from different counties around the country that have set records with how much fentanyl they've confiscated by a mile. And to us, <laughs> right. it seems like a ton. But to the to China and to the cartels, it's a drop it's in the bucket. Drop, yeah. yeah, and I mean they're producing so much and sending so much. They're, they'll be brazen, just, and they'll just send like an ounce through the mail, just to see if they can get it through. Right, and, and like know? we talked about that before. So I, I look at my stat here for customs for this year um, until October. Their fiscal year is ninety nine thousand three hundred thirty seven pounds. That's insane. Um, and that's what they've confiscated. And I told her, I'm like, if that's what they've confiscated, three to four times that much has gotten through. Um, and we know it just takes a small amount to kill someone. Well, they've said that a kilo, which is 2.2 pounds essentially, right, yeah. is enough to kill 500,000 people. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's a pure brick of fentanyl, right. a kilo can kill 500,000 people potentially. Right. It's lethal. And I, I th- over the weekend, I think they seized um, a kilo or two coming in as well. So, I mean, these, they're just massive quantities. And, and I want parents to be aware. I want parents to hear your story because I want them to have conversations with their kids about this. It's not you're not going to put something in their mind because I assure you, your kids are already probably have experienced this, seen this, no friends that have o- overdosed or no friends that have died from this. So you're not putting any idea in their head about drugs talking about this. Um, so I just want people to just take what you've learned today and apply this to your own families and have those conversations because it's so important that we talk to our kids and not just kids that are like in, in their teen and preteen years. Talk to your older kids, too, because that's really hitting that 20 to 30 year old group as well. Um, but thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and in all of this. And um, I really want listeners to take something from this. And that is just have a conversation. Well, one thing I really want to talk about is um, the fake pills that we were, t- we were yeah. talking about in the beginning. Right where we see all the pills in the street are fake pressed. So everything that the kids are buying. So literally what the cartel is doing is they have bought pill presses off Amazon and they've bought dyes and all kinds of things. And they've made, they look exactly like the real thing. They've Mm -hmm. made fake Perk 30s. So they're called M30s or blues. Mm -hmm. They're little blue pills with an M on one side and a 30 on the other. And this is what all the kids are using. And when I say kids, I'm talking about middle school and high school kids. So we're seeing a huge spike in deaths of 15 and 16 year olds around so the country. So they think they're going to Percocet when, in all reality, they're getting fed. Right. Yeah. We spoke about that. Remember, yeah. I said, you know, if you're not getting this from your pharmacist or your doctor, you shouldn't take it because they're stamped, they're colored, they're pressed just to look like the real thing. And we're seeing Vicodin, we're seeing Percocet, we're yeah. seeing Xanax. They're even coming out with fake Adderall now because Adderall is super popular yeah. among the college kids and right. high school kids. Right. And what I didn't speak about, and I wanted to, and I completely forgot, was uh, there was just a seizure in Georgia. Of Jolly Ranchers. Yes. Um, yep, that they that. took the Jolly Ranchers, they melted it down, added fentanyl to the Jolly Ranchers, and repressed them to look like gummy bears. Um, and they resealed them back in the wrapper for Jolly Ranchers, and that's what they're handing out as drugs. So, I mean, parents just need to be aware. You need to look at what your kids are doing, what they have, and have these conversations. Uh, just have the conversation. Well, and all the drugs are basically being sold for the most part over Snapchat. Yeah. That's one of the things that people yeah. need to be aware of. And yeah, the reason they use that. Snapchat is because it disappears as soon as you close the app. Snapchat is essentially the new open-air drug market. Right. Right. And there's other apps, too, but that's a, right. a really big one. I don't know if this question's allowed, but you both seem, like, really open and honest. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask it anyway. Sophia knows this because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. But for me, when it comes to situations like 
really any drug addict, not just you guys, and both, both of you have a similar story, again, that's very different from other people that I know in my family. But for me, it's hard to be empathetic sometimes. After that third or fourth overdose, I'm kind of like, well, bud, I, I don't know what to tell you at this point. And for me, I look at it a lot of times that I want to put the personal responsibility on, I'm just going to use Nate because you're here and you're sitting in front of me. I want to put it on Nate. Is that fair to do of people like me towards folks who are struggling with an addiction? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say so, you know, compassion and empathy are obviously huge when dealing with somebody with mm-hmm. substance use disorder. However, we talked about healthy boundaries. And as people with substance use disorder, we also are certainly held accountable for our actions. So it is on us if we decide to keep using. Now, it is a disease and it is something that it's incredibly hard to shake and it takes years and it takes a lot of practice. However, that doesn't, Tommy and I are not advocates saying that everybody that's addicted to drugs or alcohol is not responsible for their actions. I mean, we certainly are. Um, So I think it's okay to have healthy boundaries. And that's why you want to bring in somebody that's professional, though, and say, hey, here's somebody you can connect with who understands. And it's okay sometimes for the family to step back and to not be in their lives. And what I mean by that, I don't mean like cut them off completely and say, I'm never going to talk to you again. However, you know, I'll talk to you about, you know, your life and what you're doing for your recovery. And I'll tell you that I love you, but I'm not going to give you money. I'm not going to give you rides. I'm not going to pay your rent. I'm not going to put gas in your car. It's, it's okay to have those healthy boundaries. And it's okay to say, hey, listen, I really think you need to get help. It is, it is actually a good thing for you to continue to push that person to do better and to get help. I mean, and there's certainly a way to do that. You don't want to shame the person because they already have a lot of shame and guilt. But there's certainly a positive way to reinforce those boundaries and say, I don't accept the way that you're choosing to live your life currently, and we need to find you some help. Here's somebody you can talk to, or here's some resources, and I I want you to go take advantage of these resources. And if you choose not to, you know, our relationship is just certainly going to change. So how can, really quick, if folks are listening, get in contact with you guys specifically? One more time. I think the easiest way to do it would probably be to go to our Bare Knuckle Recovery Facebook page because from there you can send us a message directly. My phone number is on there, so you can call or text me directly. Um, That's probably the easiest way. Yeah, I mean, same with me. I mean, you know, Tommy's number's on there, but we both get the messages that come through the page. Um, People can certainly feel free to reach out to us. I mean, they can also certainly feel free to call Fort Wayne Recovery or Allendale Treatment, you know, uh, because... The people that work there, we work with them on an everyday, you know, basis, obviously. And, you know, they're very uh, sympathetic and empathetic, just like we are. They're the same mindset. You know, we don't care what kind of resources you have, where you're from, what you're struggling with. We always help people get resources. Resource mapping is by far the most important thing that we do at Bare Knuckle Recovery, at Fort Wayne Recovery, at Allendale Treatment. We don't care. Just reach out to us and we'll definitely get you connected. Next week, we're going to have Jennifer Hope here. She's uh, the founder of Mom of an Addict. So we're going to talk about uh, the families and how they deal with this and what they can do to help their loved ones who may be uh, struggling in this area. Don't forget, if you missed any episodes of Unholstered or even a portion of this one, you can still download the Unholstered podcast anywhere you can download a podcast. Your town, your team, your topics. This is Unholstered. Thanks for listening to Unholstered. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. And remember, you can listen every Saturday morning at 1030 on WoWo 1190 and 1075 FM. Podcasts by Federated Media.